Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome back for another episode of Jenna Story, We Agreed to Do This. I'm your host, John Lestrange, and this month we're talking about Avatar The Last Airbender again, this time book two. So book one focused mainly on water, on Aang and Katara learning uh, waterbending. We were introduced to a few of the genocides that the Fire Nation instigated. They're one against the Air Nomads, obviously being chief among them, as it's the one that starts off the series and the Hundred Years' War. But we also have to take into account the fact that there were no waterbenders in the Southern Tribe, save for Katara, uh, a child who had no one to teach her any of her cultural heritage. So that's a pretty significant thing right there, and it mirrors a lot of real-world genocides and a lot of real-world cultural genocides specifically. Uh, we can draw a pretty significant parallel to the treatment of indigenous people by European colonizers as they are denied their heritage or taught that their heritage is wrong and sinful and have it consistently demonized to them. Book two is going to focus pretty significantly on Earth. While Aang hasn't necessarily mastered waterbending at the end of book one, Katara has because she's just that much better than him. So she's going to be Aang's new waterbending teacher, because as we learned the end of, or as we learned in book one, Aang has until summer's end to master the three other bending disciplines and stop Fire Lord Sozin from, well, destroying the Earth Kingdom like he did with the Air Nomads. So Katara is going to be teaching Aang waterbending, and now he just has to go and find himself an earthbending teacher, and then Lord knows what we're going to do with firebending, because Aang's one foray into firebending didn't go super great. He burned Katara, the one firebending master, who had left the Fire Nation military and not been captured and executed, is nowhere to be found. God knows if we'll ever see Zhang Zhang again, so how Aang is going to learn firebending is anyone's guess. Unless you've already seen the series, in which case you know, but for anyone who might be listening to this who hasn't seen book three yet, we're going to try and avoid spoilers if we can. So, episode one of book two is a doozy. It's called The Avatar State. Uh, so that's what we're going to be dealing with in it. We're going to be dealing with uh, the Avatar State, this super-powered... Uh, form that Aang has sometimes where he basically goes into a berserker rage and smashes stuff using his mighty avatar powers. 
when Aang enters into the Avatar state, he taps into all of the knowledge and skill and power of his past lives. And that goes back thousands of years. So he's tapping into a lot of power, but he has no control over it. So it is basically a berserker rage. But one of the Earth Kingdom generals thinks that sounds like a great idea. This is one of the stupidest adults in the entire show. So Aang starts off season two with some trauma dreams about the Avatar state and the massive amounts of violence he's capable of while in it. Aang's 12. He's a gentle boy. He was raised in a, a largely pacifist culture. He doesn't want to hurt people. And so he starts off this season afraid of his own power because at the end of book one, he went into a giant avatar fish state, drawing on the power of the moon and ocean spirits. And who knows how many people he killed when he wiped out that Fire Nation fleet. But uh, Aang has some PTSD that he's going to have to unpack. Um, hopefully he gets a chance to do that this season. As the episode starts off, it's also the three-year anniversary of when Zuko's father burned and banished him. So there's just a lot of trauma in this episode. Also, we get introduced to Azula, Zuko's sister and a grade-A asshole. Mind you, she's also like 16 years old, so there's a lot of just child soldiers in this. We also get some adult soldiers, but it's mostly the kids carrying the weight of this, which great for them for having a lot of agency, but also like we shouldn't need children to fight in our wars. So Aang, Katara, and Sokka, they run across an Earth Kingdom general right, who's um, going to help them, I guess, is his plan. He says, congratulations, Aang, you're ready to fight the Fire Lord now, to which everyone collectively responds, I'm sorry, what now? Because Aang's obviously not ready to fight the Fire Lord. He's barely uh, made a, a dent into waterbending. He's still got a while to go before he's mastered that. He hasn't even started learning earthbending, and his one foray into firebending ended with him deciding that he's never going to firebend ever again in his entire life. So... I'm sorry, what you say? He's ready to fight the Fire Lord? General Fong, is this general's name, is the name of the stupidest man in this entire show, decides that Aang doesn't actually need to master the four bending elements. He doesn't need to come into his own as a fully realized avatar. He just needs to go into the avatar state, and then he can fight Fire Lord Sozin. Not Fire Lord Sozin. Fire Lord Ozai. I think I said Sozin earlier in this recording, but it's too late to go back and fix it. So if I made that mistake, oh well. This is Fire Lord Ozai, voiced by Mark Hamill. I love you, Mark. Please don't be mad at me. But General Fong, right, instead of going with this, you know, good plan of Aang mastering the four elements as, as quickly as he possibly can, hopefully by the end of summer, and then fighting the Fire Lord then when he's ready, decides that the best course of action is to guilt trip a 12-year-old. Because he says to Aang, for every second or minute or day or whatever you spend learning these elements and not just going to fight the Fire Lord in your Berserker Rage mode, more people are dying in this war. A war that you could end right now by just going over to the Fire Lord, entering the Avatar state, and punching him real hard in the face. But, like, Aang doesn't know how to get in and out of the Avatar state. It's not a thing that he knows 
uh, how to do. He's never had any training in how to be an avatar because the second that he learned that he was one, he ran off into a storm and got frozen in a giant sphere of ice for a hundred years. So I don't know how you expect him to do this, Fong, but the ways that they try and trick Aang into the avatar state are hilarious. They try... Uh, startling him, they try scaring him, like you'd get someone to, you know, uh, lose their hiccups. This one dude tries, like, a, a weird ritual where he takes, like, a bellows of air, some water, mud, and a torch, and, like, he combines them all into, like, a big old urn. It's like, I combine the four elements into one. And then he just hurls a bunch of, like, warm mud at Aang, and it's like, did that do it? It didn't. It didn't do it, sir. That was a dumb idea. I don't know why you thought that would work. Uh, meanwhile, Azula is trying to trick her brother Zuko into going home because what Zuko doesn't know is that his dad sent off Azula to capture Zuko and Iroh and bring them back home where they will then be imprisoned. But Zuko, who spent three years desperately trying to win back the approval of his father by capturing the Avatar, hears that his dad wants him to come home, and it's everything that he's wanted for the past three years. So he's ecstatic of this. Iroh doesn't trust it, because Iroh knows that Azula is a sociopath and cannot be trusted, but... Iroh is big on letting Zuko make his own mistakes, but being there to keep him from getting too badly hurt. When Aang decides that he does not want to enter his barbarian rage to fight uh, Ozai, the general decides to try and kill him to induce it, because Aang's like, hey, listen, I can only enter the Avatar state when I'm like in real danger, because the only times that he's ever entered the Avatar state are, one, when his life is in severe danger, or when he's like phenomenally angry beyond the point of reason. Um, and they're unable to manufacture that emotion out of nowhere. It has to be a, like a genuine thing, so danger it has to be. But the entire Earth Kingdom army that's there is really bad or again they just have no concept of how to fight an airbender because ang is like deftly dodging all of their blows and it's very very cool so when that doesn't work when trying to like fight ang doesn't work because he's just so much better than them general fong decides okay i'm just gonna kill katara and then it looks like he does that because he just buries her under the earth and like suddenly she's gone and hey, that does it, General Fong. That triggers the Avatar state and gets Aang to try and completely wreck your shop. And then he decimates your entire army and then you decide to celebrate because haha, it worked. Now we just we just do this each time we need you to fight. It's like, Fong, who do you think Aang's anger is directed at? Like, do you not know how any of this... Well, I guess you probably don't know how any of this works because no one knows how any of this works, but... His anger is directed at you, you who, like, apparently killed Katara. So the episode ends with them telling General Fong, hey, listen, this is the dumbest idea ever. We're not going to do this. And Fong's like, no, this is great. This is super awesome. And then Sokka just knocks him the hell out with his club. They all turn to the army and say, hey, we're going to leave now. Anyone want to try and stop us? And they're like, uh, no, no. So they go off to try and find Aang, an earthbending teacher. And at the end of the episode, in one of the last scenes that we see, Zuko and Iroh cut off their top knots. Um, 
which if you've ever like watched any like anything like the last samurai or, or anything that involves samurai or like feudal japanese culture you, you'll have seen a top knot before um it's culturally a, a very important thing um it marks them as part of the royal family right you don't see anyone else wearing a top knot throughout the show except for uh ozai azula iroh Zuko, they've they've all got them because that marks them as a member of the royal family. And by cutting off their top knots, they are um, culturally and literally severing their connection to the Fire Nation. Um, because Ozai clearly wants them dead or or captured. Zula has been sent to bring them back in and throw them in jail. So there's literally no going back at this point. Zuko still holds out hope that he'll eventually. You know, regain his honor and be welcomed back by his father, but for now at least they have nothing. Um, there were no cool episodes in Animal One. We're going to continue our trend of that. Episode two is funny. Um, it's a favorite of a lot of fans because of the Secret Tunnel song which is probably one of the most widely quoted things in the entirety of Avatar because it's a delightful and ridiculous song. Um, Aang and Katara are working on waterbending, obviously, because Aang still hasn't mastered that. So he works on something called octopus form, which is really, really cool and very useful. Um, and it's something that will come back by the end of the season, but it's just a very fun uh, looking thing. The gang is trying to get to uh, the Earth Kingdom city of Omashu because that's where King Bumi is. And Aang has decided that if anyone's going to teach him how to do earthbending, it's going to be one, one of the most powerful earthbenders in the entire world. Uh, and two, his old friend Bumi. Um, and this episode gives us a really cool look into Earth Kingdom culture because we get to learn about not only the origins of earthbending itself, but also the founding of the city of Omashu. Um because we learn about these two feuding villages, classic story as old as time. It's very Romeo and Juliet-esque. Uh, and these uh, two right, young adults, Oma and Shu, um, who fall in love with each other, even though they're from these feuding kingdoms and who meet in the mountain between uh, their kingdoms and, you know, have their, their secret love affair uh, and who learn earthbending from the Badramoles so that they can make these winding, twisting passages through the mountain to not only aid themselves in finding each other, but also to keep themselves from being discovered by these people. Uh, one of them uh, eventually dies uh, in the fighting, and as the two villages go to attack each other, the other one, I can't remember which one is which, I'm going to assume that uh, this one is Oma, uh, goes between the two armies and, like, shows off her massively powerful earthbending and just declares like the war is over and you know they establish peace and so the two villages combine into the great city of omashu named after the two lovers from the tale oma and shu zuko and iroh are now homeless refugees and they get taken in by an earth kingdom family who feeds them uh who shows them you know great kindness uh the daughter in the family has also been burned by the Fire Nation in much the same way that Zuko has. Her burn is on her leg, and it's something that she can very easily cover, but this is someone who can, to some extent or another, understand what he's going through. And they have 
a relatively sweet bonding moment over it. This does not stop Zuko from stealing their ostrich horses later in the episode so that he and Iroh can travel more easily. Uh, the tunnels through the mountain that um, the gang is going through, through this secret tunnel to get to Omashu, they keep seeming to change. And the gang take this to be uh, a curse because part of the story is that the the tunnels are are cursed so that you know no one who and who doesn't trust in true love is going to get lost in them forever um but it's later revealed to be badger moles the original earthbenders right and it's very cool that not only do we have these hybrid animals in the show who uh, are like combinations of weird things like we've also got wolf bats in this episode that are exactly what they sound like uh they're wolf-sized quadrupedal bats um, but we've also got animals that seem to have like magical powers, like giant badger moles who can move the earth with some kind of mystical force. The sky bison with the original airbenders, according to airbender legend, like it's a giant six legged, like there's no way that Appa actually flies by any laws of physics. He's clearly using airbending to do it. It's very, very cool that this is a thing that exists. Um, the gang eventually finds their way through the secret tunnel and they are in the city of Omashu only to discover that Omashu has been taken over by the Fire Nation. Now this is a bit of a surprise to Aang because how did the Fire Nation defeat his uh, good friend Bumi? Omashu is a very... It, the city looks like a mountain, right? It's all built on a very steep slope. It'd be a difficult thing to attack because you'd have to constantly be going uphill and the palace is at the center of it. So it makes it a very defensible city. But in the brief time that they've been gone, just a few weeks maybe from the city of Omashu, it's been captured. Aang was dead set on having Bumi as his teacher, but that doesn't seem likely now, what with the occupation. Um... So they sneak in through the cities, and this is where we meet one of our first cool animals in the new in this episode, uh, a pentapus, which is like an octopus except it's small and it's got five stubby little legs, and they're very very cute. And they like to attach to people's faces, and when you tickle them to get them to let go, they leave behind a star shaped um, like suction marks, uh, which the gang uh, lie to authority figures that Sokka has plague and they use that as a way of avoiding unnecessary questions as they sneak into the city. So great job, kids lie to authority figures about a deadly plague. That's super good idea. Meanwhile, as the gang is sneaking into the city to uh, hopefully free Boomy and figure out what's going on. Azula is recruiting an elite squad of her only friends track down Zuko uh, and the Avatar. Although not the Avatar yet, because she has no idea where to find him. She's mostly interested in finding Zuko at this point. This reminds me of a meme about uh, at the uh, Hamilton musical, uh, where Washington uh, says to Hamilton, we are um, outgunned, outmanned. Uh, and then Hamilton's like, I have three friends that I can recruit for this cause. These are Azula's only two friends. Um, a daughter of a noble family who's run off to join the circus as a contortionist and another daughter of a noble family who uh, shows no outward emotion and really loves throwing knives at people. 
Tylee and May are amazing and wonderful, and I love them so much. So there is an organized resistance in Omashu. And while we might assume that Bumi is the one leading it, he's not. Bumi is in a metal coffin kind of thing. It's a classic way of imprisoning earthbenders because metal bending isn't a thing, right? You, you can bend the earth, but metal is too purified and can't be bent. So the resistance feels that Bumi has abandoned them, but Bumi feels that he is waiting patiently for the right time to strike, that while he could have just fought the Fire Nation from the beginning, it wasn't the right time to have that particular battle. So he's just waiting patiently. But I gotta love a resistance against a tyrannical oppression, and this one's going much better than Jet's resistance. There are way fewer war crimes. No war crimes at all, by present count. Something unfortunate happens partway through the episode as Aang and the gang accidentally kidnap a baby. Thanks, Momo. As Azula goes through recruiting her friends, we get a look into just how terrible of a person she is. Because when Tai Lee, who's working at a circus, says, Sorry, Azula, I can't go help you capture uh, your brother. I'm going to stay here at the circus uh, and live like my life the way that I want. Azula basically just threatens her life until she agrees. Uh, setting the net underneath her tightrope on fire, releasing a bunch of savage animals into the tent. Um, all nominally in the interest of making the show more interesting, but really it's just so that she can threaten her friend uh, with death until she agrees to go with her. What the fuck, Azula? Aang frees Boomy, um, and they surf on his metal coffin thing down the mail chutes all the way to the bottom of the city. Um, and it looks like they've gotten away scot-free. And then Boomy earthbends a little, like, ramp and, like, flips himself around to stand all nice and neatly using only his neck. Boomy, that's not how martial arts work. You can't just, like, grunt and, like, lift your chin and make, st and, like, make stuff happen. Like, that's not, it's not how this, a little consistency is all I'm asking for, Avatar The Last Airbender. You're usually so good about this in how weapons are used and work and how martial arts translates into this mystical, magical fighting style, but that's not how it works. So Bumi tells Aang that he's going to have to find a different earthbending teacher, that Bumi has to stay here and wait for the right time to strike. And he tells Aang that he's going to have to find someone who waits and listens for the right moment to strike. Um, which will eventually happen literally, but more on that when we get to it. Our only cool animal for episode three was the pentapus. Episode four, we start off with Zuko and Iroh begging in the streets, um, and Aang and the gang find themselves descending into a magic swamp that treats them all to some very weird visions. Katara sees her mom, uh, Sokka sees Yue, his girlfriend who turned into the moon, and Aang sees a little girl with a flying pet pig. Um, the flying pig isn't one of our cool animals, though, because so far as we know, they don't actually exist. This is a vision that Aang is seeing, um, and it's not an actual real cool animal. Uh, but we do get some other cool animals like elbow leeches, which are literally just leeches that only attach to um, your elbows, a small, very fat bird that just screams, um catfish alligators and possum chicken 
because you guessed it, we're in Swamp Folk Town, where we run into some very strange waterbenders, the Foggy Swamp Benders. Now, while these are technically other waterbenders, they do live in the Earth Kingdom, and not in any of the two areas that are technically considered water tribe territory. Um, so culturally, they're very, very different than either of the two places because obviously they do not live in a land of snow and ice. They live in the swamp. And they're, I mean, they're, they're the classic stereotype of swamp people. They've got the accent. They've got the, you know, river boats and the catfish and the, you know, uh, eating weird things. And it is our classic real world stereotype of swamp folk. Um, but they are pretty cool, and they water bend in some very interesting ways. One of them, named Hugh, bends the water inside plants to make a giant vine monster that he uses to scare off people from uh, their swamp. Uh, so culturally, they're a, a pretty cool thing. We don't get too much of a look into their culture and how it differs from North and South Pole culture uh, beyond what we can just visually see. Uh, they don't dress in furs. They don't dress in all blue. They have uh, leaf hats, and they basically wear leaf loincloths. But beyond that, they are pretty much naked, and they go around in, you know, like river boats, basically, that they use water bending to move around. It's, it's pretty cool, uh, but there's not much to this episode beyond that. In episode 5, Aang and the gang are on the run from a group of firebenders called the Rough Rhinos, which you'll remember from book 1, and they find themselves in a town celebrating Avatar Day. And Aang is very excited to see that he's going to be celebrated, but boy is he in for a rude awakening, because that's not what these people are doing. Also, Sokka lost his boomerang. And this is very, very sad because it's one of his defining features, but boomerangs always come back, right? We'll find out. There are three gigantic floats, and I'm talking about like gigantic floats. These things are four or five story tall, um, like paper representations of the past three avatars. We've got Avatar Kyoshi, we've got Avatar Roku, and we've got Avatar Aang. Um, and Aang's very, very excited about this. There's deep fried festival food. There's these three giant things. There's a dude running up with a torch and it seems very, very cool. And then, oh no, they're setting the Avatar floats on fire because it turns out this village isn't celebrating the Avatar. They're celebrating how much they hate the Avatar. Specifically Avatar Kyoshi, but the past life thing just means that they extend that hate to everyone. Uh, Zuko is now adopting his blue spirit guys to Robin Hood it up, except instead of stealing from the rich and giving it to the poor, he steals from everyone and gives to himself and Iroh. Uh, but traveling around the Earth Kingdom as basically refugees and peasants, he and Iroh don't exactly have access to the resources that they once had, and it's not like he can just go around and firebending all over the place. So he's going around with his blue spirit mask and his twin Dao swords, and he's just, he's robbing from people. Um, now, it turns out that the people of this village, um, the village of Chin, hate Aang because their ancestral leader, Chin the Great, also known as Chin the Conqueror, was killed by Avatar Kyoshi. Now, 
Sokka and Katara spend the whole episode gathering evidence to prove Aang's innocence only for Kyoshi to show up in spirit form near the end of the episode and say, no, yeah, I death killed him and I'd do it again because Avatar Kyoshi fears no man and gives no fucks. She also lived to be like 230 years old. I'm going to say that every single time I have to talk about Avatar Kyoshi, she's the coolest ever. Um... Also, she made an entire, like the like Kyoshi Island that we go to in episode one, Kyoshi made that by just ripping the edge of a cliff off and fucking just blowing it away with wind. Like she just made that island by ripping it away from a continent and just pushing it out into sea with wind. Damn, Kyoshi. So once it's determined that uh, the Avatar actually did kill Chin the Conqueror, then it's time for Aang to be punished in the weirdest court system ever, right? Their criminal justice system is um, you, the accused, say your piece, and then I, the judge, say my piece, and then I decide who's right. And that's why it's called justice, because it's just us. No witnesses, no anything, it's just us. And that's justice, I guess. So the punishment for Aang is to be boiled in oil. They've got a big old, like, spinning wheel, right? Like the Wheel of Morality from Animorphs, except it's the Wheel of Death. And, like, some of the punishments are things like eaten by sharks or dropped in a spike pit or, like, mauled by bears or community service or boiled in oil, which is what Aang's punishment is going to be. But then the rough rhinos show up and start burning the whole thing down because they want to capture the Avatar. And so the mayor says, Avatar, save us. And Aang says, ah, oh, gee, I'd love to, but I'm scheduled to be boiled in oil. So he just turns the little thing until it says community services as punishment. It's like, there, serve our community by <laughs> defeating these rhinos. Which Aang does. And then they, the village changes Avatar Day to be a celebration of the day that the village was not destroyed. And they did not kill the Avatar by boiling him alive in oil. Which, that's a brutal way to punish a 12-year-old. Right? Weirdest town they've ever been to, according to Sokka. And I, I think he's right. Um, the episode ends with uh, Zuko and Iroh splitting up. Because Zuko decides that he needs to find his own path in life. And that he can't live his life tied to his uncle or anything related to the Fire Nation anymore. That he needs to strike out on his own um, and leave Iroh behind. So he takes the ostrich horse and he goes off into the world. Iroh is very sad about this, and he is absolutely going to follow behind Zuko to make sure that nothing bad happens to him, but he's going to let him go off and, and live his own life and make his own choices. No cool animals in episode 5. Episode 6, Aang attends a free lesson at Master Yu's Earthbending School, which is a terrible lesson, um, and it's also a terrible school. For anyone who's ever uh, been involved in martial arts schools uh, or, or trained for any length of time, you've probably met the type of school like this. Because Master Yu tells Aang, if you pay for the whole year in advance, I'll bump you up to the next belt. And it's like, that's deeply unethical and is in no way helping your students, but fine. That's just the way that, fine. I hate it, but whatever. And after leaving the school and deciding, no, this is not the place for me, this place is terrible, Aang learns about an earthbending fight club that's basically the WWE. And that's where he meets Toph, a blind earthbender who, like Boomy said, waits and listens. 
Toph is the coolest. Like, Boomy's one of the strongest Earthbenders around. Like, there's a lot of cool fighters at uh, Earth Rumble 6, but Toph is the coolest. She's entirely blind. She walks around barefoot and sees with Earthbending. She learned from Badger Moles. Like, no one trained her in how to Earthbend. She developed her own fighting style that is based heavily off of Southern Prey and Mantis uh, Kung Fu. But, like, she just, she, she developed her entire own blind fighting style. Uh, and she's good enough to defeat uh, a dozen Earthbenders all on her own. It's amazing. There's also an Earthbender in the episode called The Boulder that is a clear reference to Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And I love him. He's so funny. <laughs> I love him so much. Um, also, if you don't love Toph, you're wrong. Toph is an excellent representation of a disability um, because it's not never treated as something that uh, makes her life unlivable or that makes her less of a character or less capable, but it's also not something that gives her just like magical superpowers that make her better than everyone else. Toph has her struggles and there are things that she can't do. If she doesn't have her feet on the ground, she can't see anything, but... Um, she is able to turn it to her own advantage um, and do some really cool and phenomenal things, uh, both in spite of and because of her disability. And it's just a very, very cool thing to see. There are also a lot of really great uh, jokes that come out of uh, Toph's inability to see things, like at the end of the episode where Sokka throws her back the fight uh, belt uh, and accidentally just hits her in the head with it because he forgets that, oh, right, she can't see anything. Um there are no cool episodes in Animal 6. Episode 7, Zuko is struggling because he set off on his own but has no plan, no money, no food, and no skills other than uh, a middling amount of fighting experience uh, and being an angry jerk. So he is dangerously close to starving when a young boy finds him and offers him hope. Um... Because there are Earth Kingdom soldiers in the village where Zuko finds himself, but instead of being like actual proper soldiers who go off to defend their people and fight against the Fire Nation, they are just bullies, basically, who use their power and authority to just throw their weight around and steal from people. They're basically just like a, a gang of thugs running a protection racket. But Zuko stands up to them uh, even after this boy throws an egg at them and Zuko winds up taking the blame for it. So the young boy brings him back to his uh, farm for a place to sleep and some food. In this episode, we get a lot uh, of flashbacks into Zuko's childhood with his father, mother, and sister. We also learn about Uncle Iroh's defeat at Ba Sing Se and the unfortunate death of his son, Lu Ten. Um, and it's the death of Iroh's son, Lu Ten, and just the length of the siege of Ba Sing Se, which took like almost two years before he uh, left. I think it was like 600 days or something that causes Iroh to leave and, and go back and abandon the siege of Ba Sing Se. And apparently the Fire Lord was originally supposed to be Iroh, not Ozai, because Iroh is the older brother. But Ozai stole it from him. It is heavily... Uh, implied that Ozai had his uh, either killed his father or had his father killed and then changed the will to make himself now the new Fire Lord and to write Iroh out of it. 
Um, there's a really cool moment in the end of this where Zuko decides that he's going to stop hiding who he is and he's going to start to feel some pride in the fact that he is a firebender and the, uh, you know, fire prince, uh, even though he's been like banished and disowned by his dad, he's going to feel some pride, uh, in who he is. And there's a really cool fight scene at the end of this. Zuko has definitely come a long way from where we see him in the beginning of the show where he was like definitely a novitiate using very basic moves. Uh, because even starving, even exhausted, uh, even without using his firebending, he handily beats a number of these Earth Kingdom soldiers using only his hands, feet, and a little bit uh, his swords. It's only at the end where he's fighting like the big bad like boss guy with his two twin hammers and his earthbending that he starts to get knocked around a little bit. And it's hard to beat a guy who's throwing like head-sized rocks at you very, very quickly. So he has to lean back on uh, his swords a bit more and his firebending, which causes him to have to leave the village because obviously no one's going to trust him. Uh, there, but it is a cool moment both in that we can see Zuko's growth and in that he begins to take pride in who he is and to sort of step beyond the shame that he's been feeling all this time. There are a bunch of cool animals in this episode, uh, mostly from the house of that young boy who uh, gives Zuko food and stuff. And they're all pig hybrids. There are pig sheep, pig cows, pig chickens. But we also see turtle ducks, which I think are a fan favorite. They're very, very cute. Um, they're just like little yellow like ducks with turtle shells on their back. And they've got four little, little duck feet. And they're very, very cute and good. Episode 8. Appa is shedding. And this is causing a lot of problems for the gang as it allows Azula to more easily track them. Also, Katara and Toph start to get on each other's nerves. Toph is self-sufficient to the point of it being a mania. She refuses to let anyone do anything for her, and because she carries her own weight in her own words throughout the entire episode, she doesn't think that she needs to help anyone else out because she's not asking for any help herself. Um, and this gets on Katara's nerves a lot, who... Like, they're a team. They work together to, like, make the workload easier for everyone. But Toph's just like, I handle my own shit, so don't ask me to help with yours. And this causes a lot of problems for them throughout the episode. Um, and it eventually leads to Toph storming off. Um, and it looks like she's gonna just leave entirely. Um, there is a point in which... Um, Aang tries to use some of Appa's shed fur. He flies off and drops some of it and tries to leave a false trail. Uh, but it doesn't fool Azula, who notices a broken treetop that Appa hit because he's also very, very tired, having been forced to fly basically without rest for who knows how many days. But this leads to a pretty cool Wild West-style confrontation between Aang and Azula that's going to actually get everyone involved in it, but we'll get to that in a bit. After Toph leaves, she runs into Uncle Iroh. She doesn't know that he's a Fire Nation man because, one, he's wearing Earth Kingdom clothes. He's just like a, a soft-spoken uh, old man who loves tea, and he offers her tea, and he gives her some great advice about how, like, asking for help isn't a weakness, which is great and like wonderful advice uh and it really like helps Toph come to terms with the fact that like she is working with a team now and that they all need to work together both to help her and then she needs to help them 
Um, eventually, at the end of this episode, everyone winds up fighting Azula. Aang and Zuko and Iroh and Katara and Sokka and Toph. And they're all there and they all throw a shot at her and she still manages to get away, which is a little terrifying. And Uncle Iroh gets hit with lightning and we think that he's dead and has very, very sad and a, a tense moment. But I think one of the most hilarious things about this is that everyone's lined up in front of Azula and like they all fire off their respective elements like fire and fire and earth and water and air and then there's Sokka just hurling his boomerang like that's gonna do anything in this grand scheme of like all four elements being hurled at her he's just like I'm gonna throw my boomerang good on you Sokka don't let anyone make you feel like you're not important and you're not contributing there are some giant horse lizards in this that are pretty cool uh that's our cool animal for episode eight uh, episode 9, it's finally time to start learning earthbending. Takes a l about halfway through the season before we get to that point, but here we are. We're going to have earthbending lessons. Uh, hell yeah, Toph. Aang faces a pretty heavy cognitive block on earthbending. The mindset he has to adopt uh, to learn it is the antithesis of everything that he learned as an airbender. Because airbenders are very go-with-the-flow. Bagua deals with circles and evasions and for not being where your opponent was expecting you to be and for, you know, dodging and weaving, and it's a very flowy thing. But earthbending, Hungar, is very straightforward. It's very head-on. It's very straight lines. It's very, here's the problem, break through it. And that's not how Aang was taught for his entire life. So the idea of adopting that mindset is very unusual for him because he's used to being able to just like jump 20 feet into the air to get away from problems and like make balls of air and like ride around on them very, very quickly. And he's not used to just smashing through his problem. Um, so while Aang was able to waterbend pretty immediately, earthbending is a very different kettle of fish. Um, but this would be the same problem that anyone like a waterbender would run into this problem learning uh, firebending and, you know, vice versa. And an earthbender would run into this problem learning airbending, most likely uh, to a greater or lesser extent. But um, yeah, this is a, a pretty big problem and it, it lasts throughout the entire episode. Um, Iroh and Zuko are back together at this point. Their splitting up didn't last very long. Uh, they've decided to travel together now, if only because Zuko feels bad that Iroh got hit with lightning and he wants to take care of him. And there's a point in the episode where Iroh is trying to teach Zuko how to shoot lightning. But the way that you uh, shoot lightning out of your fingers um, is you have to split your chi into its opposing positive and negative elements uh, make them flow through your body and let them crash back together into your stomach and the resulting explosion of energy when it launches out of you is lightning. But to do that, you need to uh, have a calm center in the storm, right? Um, lightning is sometimes called the cold-blooded fire, uh, according to Iroh. And Zuko doesn't have that. His mind and his soul and his chi are just a, a tumultuous sea of turmoil and shame um, so he, he is unable to produce lightning. Every time he tries, he just makes an explosion at the end of his hands and it knocks him backwards and it, it hurts him a little bit. Um, but he does not need to have a calm center to redirect lightning, which is something that, uh, Uncle Iroh is going to teach Suko. And it's something that Azula does not know because Uncle Iroh is the only 
person in existence who knows how to do this because he invented it himself. And Iroh invented this by observing the motions and styles of water bending. Because that's how you redirect lightning. You let it flow in and you let it flow along the paths of your chi down into your stomach and back up out your other hand and you just launch, let it pass right through you. And it's a very earthbender, go with the flow kind of thing. So it's not something that firebenders, whose style is based largely off of northern Shaolin Kung Fu, would ever think to do. Um, all of the most powerful benders in this series get that way by incorporating elements of other styles and cultures into their bending. It's why the Avatar is so powerful. It's the synthesis of the four elements into one person that makes him so formidable. So Iroh is as good as he is by studying from other cultures and adopting their things, and he's going to teach uh, Zuko at least a little bit of that. He explains the four cultures um, pretty well. Um, and Zuko actually remarks that this four elements talk sounds like Avatar stuff. Right, Because Iroh says that drawing your knowledge from only one place will make it rigid and stale, but by drawing it from multiple places, we can grow and become better people. Um, and it's a very, very cool scene. It's a very cool explanation. And it's, it's the beginning of Zuko's amazing, amazing growth arc. Um, Sokka, while out hunting for meat, gets trapped in a crack in the ground and befriends a baby saber-toothed moose lion. So that's our cool animal for this episode, saber-tooth moose lions. And the baby one's very, very cute. The adult one is not. A moose on its own is pretty big. It's going to be like seven, eight feet tall. It's literally megafauna, and it can flip a Ford Explorer using only its head. But a saber-tooth moose lion is like four times the size of that, has giant saber teeth, and like lion paws, in addition to moose antlers. It's a huge, huge thing. Um, and Aang gets over his mindset of dodge and evade when he absolutely has to, because it's the only way to save Sokka, is to stand directly in the path of this saber-toothed moose lion and not move and get it to go the hell away. Um, and this, and then standing up to Toph, who has stolen his ancestral glider staff and is using it as a nutcracker, is what allows him to enter that mindset of stand firm in the face of your problems and don't let them push you around. And so by the end of the episode, Aang is able to at least do some rudimentary earthbending. He can move a rock, which not a huge thing as far as some of the things we've seen Toph do are concerned, but it is a thing. In episode 10, Aang and the gang are all taking mini-vacations. They're still making their way towards Bossing Se, but they're allowing themselves a little bit of time to stop and just enjoy things for just like a few brief hours. Um, and Sokka decides for his mini-vacation that he wants to go to the library of Wan Shitong, he who knows 10,000 things. The only problem is that the library is out in the middle of uh, the desert, and this dude from the Bossing Se uh, Cultural University has been unable to find it in years and years of searching. But they have something that he doesn't, a flying bison. So they go out and they find it. Uh, the scholar, who's voiced by um, Rafael Vargas, the same uh, gentleman who voices Caden Alenko from the Mass Effect series, 
uh, is a delightful, delightful character. We get a look into some variations in earthbending culture. In the same way that we have the foggy swamp benders, who are a variation on waterbending culture, we have sand benders, which are visually based on the Tusken Raiders from Star Wars. They've got very similar uh, kind of clothing. Um, and it's always cool to see these little variations uh, because instead of bending like hard-packed earth and rock and stone, they are bending specifically sand. And so it's a weird synthesis of earth and air because they have these things called um, sand sailors, if I'm remembering correctly. And they move them with a, a sail on the front that they uh, push by bending a whirlwind of sand into it and using the wind from that to push them forward. So it's a cool synthesis of air and earth. Uh, that's very, very cool. Sokka is hoping to use the library to find a current map of the Fire Nation so they can plan an eventual invasion of it. This angers Wan Chi Tong because the last time someone found his library, they also used the knowledge uh, contained within it to wage war. And the last person to find it was Admiral Zhao. You'll remember back in Season 1, he mentions how he found an ancient library deep in the Earth Kingdom where he learned about the physical location of the moon and uh, ocean spirits. And that was Wan Chi Tong's library. And in addition to finding this information and using it to kill the moon spirit, Admiral Zhao also burns the entire section on the Fire Nation to cinders. And so when Wan Shi Tong learns that Sokka plans on using this knowledge to wage war, even after Sokka promised that he was not going to do that, he decides that he's going to pull his entire library back out of the physical world and into the spirit world where no one will ever be able to use or access it again. But the trip isn't entirely in vain, because Sokka and Aang learn about what's called the darkest day in Fire Nation history, which was, it turned out to be a solar eclipse. Just like how waterbenders lose their powers in a lunar eclipse or after the moon was killed, firebenders will lose their powers in a solar eclipse. And this eclipse is, very conveniently, happening shortly before Sozin's comet is due to come back. So it is a time, only for very briefly, for a few minutes, but it is a time in which the Fire Nation will be entirely without their bending. A perfect time for them to begin their invasion, and hopefully get at least to fighting the Fire Lord by the time the, their powers come back. Wan Chitong sinks the library, so no one's ever going to find it again, but even worse than that, Appa gets taken by sandbenders. The entire time that the gang was in the library, Toph is outside waiting with Appa. She has little interest in a library in books because she's blind and can't read. Um, and when the library starts to sink back into the ground, Toph holds this entire massive stories-high edifice up out of the ground uh, using just her earthbending, and it is a phenomenal feat of strength and skill, but she can't stop it forever. She also can't stop it from sinking and stop Appa from getting taken, because she can't see very well on the sand. It's not hard-packed earth. It doesn't carry the vibrations that she sees with cleanly, so everything comes back very, very fuzzy. Um, so instead of, you know, being able to see clearly, she's in desperate need of glasses, as it were. Um, so Appa gets taken by the sandbenders, uh, and this is going to cause some huge problems immediately after, like, like, it's the second the gang gets out of the library. 
we get one cool animal in uh, episode 10. It is lion turtles, but we only get them as an illustration. We only get it for a brief moment. Um, they will come back later in season three, but for now we've got illustrations of lion turtles. It's a very, very cool thing. They're some of my favorite animals in the show. Zuko and Iroh find uh, the Order of the White Lotus, a secret society that Iroh is part of to get them into Ba Sing Se. The gang are stuck in the middle of the desert with basically no water. Um, so this episode is really just their struggle getting through this. Aang is angrier than we've ever seen him outside of the Avatar state because his oldest friend is gone, has been kidnapped, and they're trapped out in the middle of the desert with no food, no water, and now having to walk their way out. Um, and it's, it's hard because Aang is still just a 12-year-old boy. But they eventually get out of the desert, and they're making their way towards Bossing Say, or hopefully they'll find uh, Appa. And even if they don't, Hang still has to like learn uh, earthbending, and they have to tell the Earth King, really the last major point of resistance against the Fire Nation, about the darkest day in Fire Nation history, so that they can plan this invasion. So they're out of the desert, and they're going to cross over into Bossing Say. Um, and to do that, they're going to cross something called the Serpent's Pass. They could have gotten in on the ferry We're using Toph's, um, because Toph, in addition to being a blind earthbender, is also a member of one of the most prominent noble families in the entire Earth Kingdom, the Beifong family, whose symbol is a flying boar. And they could have used her, like, family seal to get in, but... There was this pregnant family that they met earlier in the episode, and they all of their stuff was stolen, including their passports, so they couldn't get into the city via the ferry. So Aang and the gang stay with them to cross the Serpent's Pass, a very winding, very thin uh, passageway um, that they don't understand why it's called the Serpent's Path. Maybe it's because it kind of goes up and down and it's very thin like a serpent. Turns out, no. There's a giant water serpent, kind of like the Unagi by Kyoshi Island, but a little bit different, living right near it. And so it is the Serpent's Pass, as in belonging to this serpent. But Suki's back. Um, we get a reunion with our favorite Kyoshi warrior, who taught Sokka how to pull his head out of his ass. Uh, and there's some very cute moments between Suki and Sokka um, as they flirt a little bit. Sokka feels weird about it at times because, like, Yue... Um, and he feels like a desperate need to protect Suki, which is very annoying for her because she's still a better fighter than him. Um, but his uh, concerns are understandable given what he has gone through. Also, Jet is back. We get a, a lot of returning people in this episode. Uh, Jet and uh, Smellerby and Longshot, two of his freedom fighters, are going into Bossing Say. Um, and Zuko and Jet Robin Hood some food from the captain of the ship that they're on for their fellow refugees because while the refugees are being forced to eat basically rotten slop, the captain is eating like a king. So Zuko and Jet team up to do this, and uh, Jet will offer Zuko a position in his freedom fighters, but Zuko has no interest in doing that. He just wants to stay with Iroh and live their life, and he wants to just have a quiet existence for a bit. Our cool animal in episode 12 is just the serpent. It doesn't like have a name. We don't know what species it is. It's just the serpent. Episode 13. 
There is a giant Fire Nation drill coming for the wall of Ba Sing Se. Ba Sing Se, which means when we translate it, the impenetrable city. And we know this because the general of the, at the top of the wall uh, says it's not called Na Sing Se. That means the penetrable city. So we can assume that Ba Sing Se is the impenetrable city. Now this drill is huge. Like it's, it is uh, like 30 feet high and like hundreds of feet long, but the drill, but the wall is also like 15 stories tall. So the scale that we're dealing with is pretty ridiculous. Um, Sokka slaps a general in this episode for freaking out. It's very, very cool. It's also wild that uh, this 14 year old boy can get away with that. Uh, but they, they do do that. The drill is this giant thing made out of metal and the... Earthbender's method of defending their wall is mostly just throw rock on thing, uh, so they are unable to really do anything of note to this drill, but Aang and the gang manage to infiltrate it and take it down from the inside. This is a very cool moment where we see how smart Sokka is, because they get inside the drill and he instantly knows what he needs to do. He needs schematics of the place so he can figure out a plan to take it down from the inside. And after looking at those plans for like 15 seconds, he knows exactly what they need to do. Here are these metal support struts that are holding it up. We need to cut those. So Aang and Katara go through this and they start cutting through them. Um, and then Aang goes up on top of the drill and has a very cool fight against Azula where he's doing some very cool earthbending stuff. Apparently once Aang got the hang of earthbending and could actually move a rock, he learned very quickly as he does with all things because Aang is a very competent and talented uh, young prodigy. Um, but he, he breaks the drill very effectively. It has breached the wall, but not far enough for the Fire Nation to actually be able to get through it. Just the uh, half of like the like the actual drill car is through, not any of the cars in which soldiers are in. So they have successfully saved the city uh, from this. Now, unfortunately for Uncle Iroh and Zuko, who are completely unaware of this giant drill, as pretty much everyone is, Jet now knows they're firebenders. Because there is a cart with a, a guy going around it selling tea. And he claims that it's the you know hottest tea in Bossing Say. Uh, but it's like ice cold tea. And Uncle Iroh, a tea aficionado and a tea snob, heats it up with a little bit of subtle fire bending um, so that he could have himself some warm tea. But Jet knew that Uncle Iroh had gotten some cold tea because he heard him say it. And then when he looks back and sees steam rising from the tea, he's like, aha, they're firebenders. He has no actual proof of it beyond the fact that Iroh now has hot tea, but he's going to obsess over it now. No cool animals in episode 12. Episode 13, uh, we get some serious North Korea vibes here in Bossing Say. The gang has a government-appointed minder named Judy, who follows them everywhere they go with a big fake smile plastered across her face. She's their guide. She's their uh, information person. She makes sure that they only go in areas that they have been approved to go to and that no one says anything that has not been approved for them to say, giving uh, the Avatar and their friends the best possible view of Bossing Say, and keeping them as ignorant as possible. Jude D works for the Dai Li. Now we're going to talk uh, a bit about the Dai Li right now. So 
The Dai Li, and talking about them and their uh, re-education camp underneath Lake Laogai, is actually what inspired me to write my first book. Um, because Dai Li was an actual real person. He was the head of the uh, Chinese Nationalist Secret Police back during World War II, uh, known as the Himmler of China. Not much is known about his personal life, but he was a figure who was... Uh, greatly feared by everyone who ever heard his name. And so the Dai Li is named after him, this secret police that the Earth Kingdom has. Um, secret police and special organizations are very common things in uh, tyrannies and in genocidal regimes because they are a way that you can do illegal things and pass the buck on it, right? With plausible deniability, you can do these very, very bad things. Um, and the Dai Li don't call themselves a secret police. They call themselves um, cultural guardians, right? Long Feng, who is the head of the Dai Li, calls himself a cultural minister, right? And in Ba Sing Se, just like in places like North Korea, we have this government-minded, appointed minder. Uh, and in North Korea, they have that too. You are anyone who is foreign who enters the country is given a government appointed guide who makes sure that you act appropriately and that you are only shown the best sides of North Korea so that the propaganda can continue. And it's the same thing here in Bossing Se, and it's really phenomenally creepy. Uh, I mentioned Lake Laogai, their secret re-education camp, but we're going to bypass that for right now until we actually get to the episode that we deal with Lake Laogai in. So for now, we're just going to move on a little bit. Um, Jet and Zuko have a very epic sword fight as Jet gets tired of waiting for them to slip up and decides to just like, you know what, I'm going to fight this dude and then he's going to have to firebend because without it, I'm clearly the better fighter. But little do you know, Jet, is that Zuko is one of the most competent sword fighters in this entire series, uh, so you can suck it. The Dai Li have a very distinct way of earthbending. While they can earthbend just the same way that any normal earthbender does, they have um, basically gloves and shoes made of small rocks. And they use those rocks as either weapons, launching these small, very quick projectiles at people, or as handcuffs, launching them off of their own hands and then wrapping them around people's wrists and yanking them backwards. And it's a very cool way of using earthbending. We have three cool animals in episode 13, uh, cat owls and sparrow keats as Aang goes into a pet shop looking for uh, the black market for stolen animals so he can try and find Appa. The pet shop owner won't tell him anything because Judy is right there giving him this very creepy smile. But our third weird animal in episode 13 is probably my favorite. It's a bear. Just a bear. His name is Bosco. He's very, very sweet. And it's not weird for us, but it's weird for everyone else in the show. Because when they say, like, oh, yeah, the Earth King's bear, they're like, oh, you mean his platypus bear? No. You mean his leopard bear? No, just a bear. Huh, weird. Yeah, that's the weird thing. Just a regular bear is weird. It is a little weird because we never see any other just regular bear in this entire show. So, like, where did Bosco come from? But this is a bear. Episode 14 is Tales of Ba Sing Se, probably my favorite episode in the entire thing. 
Uh, it's actually two episodes for Tales of Bossing Sid because there are enough tales that we have to split it up over two episodes. Zuko gets a tale where he goes on a very cute date. Uh, Sokka gets one where he gets into a haiku battle with a snotty woman uh, and then gets tossed out of a poetry club. Um, uh, Momo gets one. Appa gets one. Katara gets one. And Toph. Um, and then there's Uncle Iroh's, which is... Just such a beautiful, such a beautiful uh, little vignette um, of Uncle Iroh going around and doing these little things and helping people while he prepares uh, for his day. He gets some incense. He gets a picnic basket. Um, he said, and he says it's not for a romantic date, but it is for a special occasion. And we don't know what that occasion is unless we've seen the episode before. But at the end of this little vignette, we know what it is. It's the anniversary of the death of his son, Luten. And Iroh goes out beneath a tree, and he sets up this incense and this picture of Luten, and he sings this very sweet song um, about a brave soldier boy. Uh, uh, and it's a, it's a plea for that brave soldier boy to come marching home, which Luten will never do because he uh, has died. And it's a, a very sad moment. Um, Aang also builds a zoo, in this episode and this is where we get most of our cool animals um in this little sequence with all of the zoo animals uh we have snake dragonflies uh rabaroos which is a very cool cross of a giant rabbit and a kangaroo we've got armadillo tigers wolf baboons a red-faced elephant baboon thing that's just what i'm calling it uh giant rhino beetles and buzzard wasps a lot of very cool stuff um, that Aang builds a, a zoo for outside because like it's a it's a terrible zoo and it's not that the zookeeper is like willfully malicious and abusing these animals it's just that um, the Dai Li won't give him funding for the zoo because kids stopped coming to it and kids stopped coming to it because the zoo's nasty and broke and it's just a vicious cycle so Aang gets all the animals out and he builds them a zoo outside and it's, it's very, very sweet. There are also just some regular cats out there. So that's another just regular animal. We've got bears and we've got just cats. Um, episode 16. This is where we're going to talk about Lake Laogai. Because Jet gets uh, taken by the Dai Li after his fight with Zuko. And he gets brought to Lake Laogai. Judy also gets brought to Lake Laogai. And a different Judy. Very obviously a different woman. Looks very different. Speaks differently. But still calling herself Judy. And asking if she is the Judy who's been with him the whole time. Right? Our original Judy comes back in this episode. But like, Lake Laogai is wild. Now, Laogai is a uh, Mandarin word that means reform through labor. And Laogai are the name of uh, forced labor re-education camps that are in the People's Republic of China, or were in. It's a little hard to tell because as of about 2008 or so, the People's Republic of China classified all knowledge on Laogai. And there's still some um, uh, NGOs and foreign governments and news organizations that are like trying to keep up information on them, but the information control inside... The People's Republic of China is pretty heavy, so it is strongly suspected that they're still around, but it is a little hard to uh, exactly confirm that. So the fact that the Dai Li 
named after uh, the head of the Chinese National Secret Police, have a re-education camp called Lake Laogai, uh, is a pretty cool uh, nod to these real-life things that exist. It's a, it's a great bit of research that the uh, crew for Avatar did. Um, we also learned that Toph has a really great ability to be a lie detector um, in this episode. She can feel uh, people as vibrations through her feet, right? And she can tell where they are. She can also feel changes in their heartbeats, which is really, really cool. And she's able to use that to tell that um, Jed is not lying when he tells them that he was not captured by the Dai Li, even though his friends say know that he was captured and dragged off by the Dai Li because Jet was brainwashed. And so they both think that they're telling the truth. But Jet is able to lead them back to underneath Lake Laogai, where we're pretty sure Appa is. Um, and they're going to go there, and they're going to confront Long Feng, and they're going to get Appa back. And when we're underneath there, we see the Jude training camp, which is a bunch of uh, women all dressed exactly the same, all speaking the same monotone, all reciting the same uh, greeting to people. And it is super creepy. There are a lot of hard-hitting moments in this episode as uh, Zuko is there in his blue spirit garb and gets to Appa before anyone else does and sets him free. Um, and how uh, Aang and Jet go to fight Long Feng, and Long Feng re-brainwashes uh, Jet Manchurian-style candidate, Manchurian candidate-style, uh, and uses him as a sleeper agent to try and take out Aang. Jet manages to break free of this and turns on Long Feng uh, and attacks him, but in doing so, he then gets attacked and Jet dies. Um, it's a surprisingly sad death given um, what we know about Jet and like the things that he did in, in season one. He had a pretty good little redemption arc there. Um, he's still a bad person and I still don't really like him, but his death was sad. They make excellent use of lighting in this episode. It's very, very creepy and sinister throughout the entire thing. Um, and we get long shot speaking for the very first time. And that's a very cool trope that you see in things, especially a lot of Kevin Smith movies. Uh, the giant silent Bob ones, because um, Longshot never speaks. His friends always know what he what he means, just like when he looks at them. But he never actually says a word. We never hear his voice until right there at the end, after Jet Jet's um injury, which will very shortly lead to his death. Longshot speaks for the first time, and it's very very cool. The gang goes after Long Feng, and they capture him outside. Um, and Long Feng's like, fine, I'll fight you all myself. So Appa just grabs his leg with his mouth and hurls him uh, at Lake Laogai and skips him like a uh, like a rock. And it is just uh, chef's kiss beautiful. It's great. No cool animals in episode 16. We're nearing the end of our uh, book two here. Episode 17, Aang and the gang are reunited with Appa, and they're flying back to the Earth Kingdom capital to confront the Earth King about Long Feng, about stealing Appa, to finally tell him about the uh, Darkest Day in Fire Nation history so that they can plan this invasion, because they've been kept from the Earth King this entire time by Long Feng and Judy and this cultural ministry, blah, blah, blah. Because the Earth King is basically a puppet of the Dai Li, and Long Feng is the actual authority in Ba Sing Se. 
Aang does this very cool no-look rock smash. Um, there's a rock, giant rock uh, surface to air flying at them and Appa, and he just like thrusts out the back of his hand and smashes through it without even looking at it. And it's just such a cool little badass moment. I love stuff like that. As they're fighting their way through the entire Earth Kingdom Royal Guard to where the Earth King is, Katara is apologizing to every single soldier that they beat up, and it's kind of adorable. Um, Zuko is dealing with some pretty rough stuff right now. Um, Uncle Iroh explains it that um, when he set Appa free, the thing that he did was in such conflict with his internal image of himself that his uh, chi and soul are basically at war with each other. But we can simplify it down to uh, Zuko did one good deed and it messed up his chi so bad that he almost died. Because that's literally what happened. He does one good deed, and that fucks up his internal energy so bad that he almost dies. You know, Avatar: The Last Airbender gave me very unrealistic gave me very unrealistic expectations of how good I'd look with a beard but no mustache. Because most people in this show have a beard but no mustache, and they look so cool. But I know that if I did that, I would look very very not good and bad and so i will not do it long feng gets arrested at the end of this episode because ang and the gang are able to prove that he is um hiding one a war the earth king didn't even know that they were at war with the fire nation for the past hundred years this war has been going on for a hundred years and while the earth king's not a hundred years old he hasn't been around for the whole thing he came to power during the war and he didn't know that it existed because Long Feng was hiding it from him this entire time. And they're able to prove uh, this and get Long Feng arrested. Um, but the Dai Li says that they're still loyal to him. So that's going to cause some problems for us in the future. We're on our last two-parter episode. Um, the gang splits up to cover all their responsibilities because the because at the end of the previous episode, they get a whole bunch of letters that Long Feng had inter intercepted and was keeping from them. Katara and Sokka learn that their dad is uh, in Chameleon Bay and is looking for them. Uh, Toph gets a letter saying that her mother is in the city and looking for her, and Aang gets a letter uh, that was tied to Appa's horn from a man named Guru Patik, who's at the Eastern Air Temple. This is where Appa's vignette in Tales from Ba Sing Se ended. Um, Guru Patik was a spiritual brother of the Air Nomads and a close personal friend of Monk Gyatso, which means that this dude is like 140 years old. He's old as hell, uh, but he's still jacked, which is really impressive i guess onion and banana juice are a great way to keep yourself healthy and to live for basically ever um he's visually basically gandhi but with a beard um and he like meditates and is a spiritual guru who like has all of his chakras opened and stuff so the gang has to split up to cover all these responsibilities ang goes to the eastern air temple to master the avatar state because guru patik says that he can teach him how to do that Katara stays in Bossing Se to help plan the war. Sokka's gone off to meet his dad, and Toph's been kidnapped. Because the letter was not actually from her mom, it was from Master Yu from the Earthbending School back in episode 6, and the uh, head MC of Earthrumble 6, who have been given a whole lot of money by Toph's dad to bring her back by any means necessary. So they capture her in a giant metal coffin like the one that Boomy was in, and they're going to bring her back to her parents.
Guru Patik does teach Aang to master the flow of his chi through his uh, chakra points, but Aang falters at the last point because each uh, chakra point deals with a specific, you know, mental element and is blocked by something. So the last one is all about like the flow of cosmic energy through you, which is what allows Aang to enter the Avastar state, and it's blocked by earthly connections. So Aang would have to give up the things that connect him to this earthly like world, like his love of Katara. And he's unwilling to do that, especially not when um, in this spiritual state, as he's about to open this uh, chakra point, he uh, gets like a vision that Katara is in danger because she is being attacked by Azula um, and about to be thrown in jail. So Aang leaves with this chakra point unopened, which means that he uh, does not have access to the Avatar state at all at this point, and rushes back to save Katara, picking up Sokka along the way, who just reunited with his dad and was about to go off and fight the Fire Nation with him, uh, but has to go off and save uh, his sister. Uh, and it's a touching moment. Sokka's uh, reuniting with his dad is is a very, very lovely uh, little thing, but it has to be cut short because of the needs of the story. And Toph does the coolest thing imaginable. Toph invents metal bending. Because as Guru Patik tells us when he's working Aang through the chakras, everything in the earth, everything in existence is connected, right? It's all part of the same world. And we get a little bit of this message in the Swamp episode. But he says even metal is just earth that has been purified and refined. And Toph, with her ability to feel and sense things through vibrations, is able to find those elements of earth in the metal. And so she figures out how to bend the metal. And it's so cool because it allows her to break free from the coffin thing, trap the guys in it, um, and like fully cement herself as the greatest earthbender in history. And she rushes off back to find her friends again. Everything is getting chaotic and wild near the end of this. Katara's been kidnapped by Azula because uh, the Kyoshi Warriors apparently showed up in Bossing Say at some point, except it's not really the Kyoshi Warriors. It is Azula, Tylee, and Mei who defeated the Kyoshi Warriors and stole their makeup and clothes. So Katara gets kidnapped. Zuko gets kidnapped because he and Iroh run away from Azula at one point. And while Iroh escapes, Zuko's like, no, I have to stay and fight her. I refuse to run anymore. And then he gets his butt kicked because Azula's better than him. So Zuko and Katara are in jail. Toph can metal bend now. Aang is locked out of the Avatar state. And Longfang is staging a coup. It's getting wild. Avatar very appropriately set itself up as a three-act play. And we are at the end of Act 2 now where everything goes wrong. But we get the team up of the century, Uncle Iroh and Toph. Um, Sokka does not want to trust Iroh at all um, when he says that he needs their help getting Zuko back. But to be fair to Iroh, Uncle Iroh never actually attacked any of you. Throughout the entire season one, as Zuko was tracking you all down, Iroh never fought you. He was just there to help out his nephew and to make sure that he didn't die. But Iroh never actually attacked any of Aang and the gang. Um, so they all team up to go and save Katara and the Angry Jerk. 
as Sokka says, and then turns to Iroh saying, no offense, and Iroh says, none taken, because it's true, his nephew is an angry jerk. Zuko and Katara have a bonding moment in the crystal catacombs underneath Bossing Se over the fact that the Fire Nation took their mothers from them. Um, and we almost get our beautiful Zutara ship um, right there in that moment, but as it's about to happen and cement itself in the canon, Aang and Iroh show up, um, and so we lose it. We lose it forever, um, and it's sad because Zutara is better than Aang and Katara Always, 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 forever. Zuko gets a chance to choose good and join the Avatar with his uncle, but he lets his faulty conceptions of honor dictate his actions, and he winds up joining with Azula to fight against the Avatar and Katara. Um, we get a return of octopus form from uh, very early in the season in episode 2, because Katara uses it against Azula, and she almost has her. She almost has her, but then Zuko has to be a butt and ruins it. Um, as the fight is starting to take a turn for the worst, Aang realizes that he's going to need the Avatar state to beat Azula and Zuko. And so he builds himself a little earth fort and goes uh, into spiritual form to unlock that last chakra. And as he's rising from the ground slowly, uh, you know, unlocking fully the Avatar state and having constant control of it, Azula shoots him with lightning. Um, and it looks like Aang might be dead, which would be very, very bad, because was he in the Avatar state when he maybe died? Who knows? Because if he dies in the Avatar state, that's it. The Avatar cycle is broken forever, as we learned back in Book 1. But Katara, using the magical water from the spirit oasis in the North Pole that Grandmaster Paku gave her at the end of Season 1, is able to heal him, and he comes back. But now... Um, the Fire Nation now has Ba Sing Se. It's been captured. Azula is in control of the city. Iroh has been captured and is in jail. And Aang and the gang are running away um, because everything has gone to shit as it is meant to at the end of Act 2. That's going to do it for us for Book 2. Um, we'll come back next month with Book 3. Um... Um, if you like what you heard here, you can find um, Jenna's story on uh, that'snotcanon.com. Uh, we're a part of the That's Not Canon podcasting network, which is wonderful and amazing. Um, you can find Jenna's story on Twitter at Jenna's Story Pod, uh, on Facebook uh, under the same name, or you can send me an email at jennastorypod at gmail.com. If you're looking for more of just me in your life, you can mostly find me on TikTok these days at the History Wizard. Uh, that's really the only social media I use because there are like 165,000 people that I have to interact with on that app, and that takes up a lot of my time. As per usual, I'm going to shout out another That's Not Canon podcast right here this one is a very interesting sounding one it's called dungeon deep dive what kind of city has walkable sewers how does pirate democracy work why is there a brewery in every city for every element of your fantasy world there are a thousand questions you need answered and that's where we come in 
Join Lachlan, Danae, and Tully as we over-research, overthink, and over-explain everything from city planning to funerals to the literal nuts and bolts of your world. We do the research so you don't have to. We examine real-world history, inner workings, and how to incorporate it into your game. Then we'll build one ourselves. Tailored to tabletop RPGs, but we can be used for anything from fantasy writing to annoying monologues at parties. We'd love to hear what you're using us for. Shoot us a message on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Dungeon Deep Dive, or send us an email at DungeonDeepDiveNC at gmail.com to tell us what you think, to tell us what you want us to deep dive next. This sounds really cool, and I am definitely adding it to my list once I am caught up with the Magnus Archives, which is deeply disturbing and will probably cause me nightmares by the time I'm done with it. It looks like they've got a pretty extensive catalog of stuff right here. I'm excited to jump into that. Um, I'd like to finish up with a thank you to Kevin McLeod over at Incompetech for our show music and to the app Hatchful and my wife uh, for help for creating and then editing our logo. Um, as always, I'm John. And this has been Jenna Story. We agreed to do this. See you next month. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.